Hi, I'm Lara Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Cassell Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Cassell Music Foundation at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining. Hello, Thank you for having me. So, Brian, you're a founding member of Beachwood Sparks, Gospel Beach, and many other bands and projects. And you recorded Neil's song, You Won't See Me Crying. And I wanted to start things by asking what the mission of the Neil Cassell Music Foundation means to you. Well, it means everything, really. I think it's um, the way that it reflects what what I try to do in music by helping people, but it goes so much deeper. And it goes to the kind of darker problem areas, the mental health areas, and the pitfalls that come along with being alive, and especially being a musician. So I think rather than just the Neil Cassell legacy being that he was a great guitar player and songwriter and a friend to many, I think the legacy is that he will continue to help beyond his wildest dreams, help others get through some tough times because that's a reflection of what really didn't get to happen with him. He didn't get to get through the tough times. The help was there, but it wasn't as, as easy as the foundation is making it. So the mission is, to me, is the ease that which we share all this and the comfort that we have in doing it. You know, it's it's not easy, but it's um, I, I stand proud by all of it, you know, and the help that it brings. Right. It's amazing to see how much more awareness has been brought to mental health, particularly in this industry, just in the last two years since his passing. So that is a silver lining. It really is. And it's um, just really quickly for, with Music Cares and a few other organizations in my past, they've, they've actually helped me and a lot of my friends. And it wasn't always um, easy. And it took a lot of courage on, on our parts to, to walk in those doors and to make those calls. But now it's easier. That's what I talk about, the ease. It's there. Not that there has been any blowback or anything, but it's very like, you know, when we do these tributes and we post about Neil and we talk about him, it's not in a self-serving way. The foundation is always on my mind. And yeah, there's great memories I like to share with people, but it's really about the foundation because I see a lot of people out there struggling. I don't want to be real heavy, but it's mental health and an addiction. It runs, it's, it's not just in the music business, it's everywhere I go and we all need help. 
Absolutely. Well, that's a, a beautiful sentiment and something wonderful that is coming out of this. So you were friends and collaborators with Neil for so long. How did you very first meet Neil? I met him through a friend, Bobby Gale, who was doing publicity for him and Shannon McNally. And she thought that we'd get along really well. And uh, I think she played Neil Beachwood Sparks and um, he loved it. And uh, next thing you know, we were face to face meeting each other. And it was just like one of those things like, hey, buddy, hey, how you doing? You know, and, and he was exactly like he was the day I met him from the last time I saw him. The first month that I knew him, I was having one of those problems times and I needed a place to stay. And he just said, I'm going on tour. Here's the keys to my apartment. And I was just like, yeah. And I mean, it wasn't just that he did something nice for me and that's why we became friends, but he, that was a lot, you know? I think letting people into your home in any way is uh, takes a lot. And um, that's like one of the biggest things you can do for somebody. And he just did that without question. And he was very trusting. And I got to watch all the Curb Your Enthusiasms that he had on, on video. So I believe um, I read an interview with Neil where he talks about Beachwood Sparks and um, Michelle Pampaloon, the owner of Fargo Records, gave him the Beachwood Sparks debut album and he just loved it. How did he come to join the band? Well, he played a couple gigs opening for us and he was new in town and, and um, he just had Anytime Tomorrow, his album was just coming out and he gave me that. And that was another thing I listened to when I was staying in his apartment. And I was like, I really like this album. People are asking where all the new Tom Petty type writers and singers are. And I was like, here's one, you know, and um, he played a couple shows and one of them, it was at the Knitting Factory, and there was literally, I think, me and a couple other people were the only people watching him. And, and the show was sold out, but he went on so early that it was, nobody heard it. And I forget which one of the guys in Beachwood walked up and said, wow, what a voice. I wish he could sing harmonies with us. And then that turned into, you know, he's a killer guitar player, too. And uh, I think it was uh, Chris Gunst said, let's, uh, let's ask him to go on this tour that we have with the Black Crows so we can sound a little bit fuller in these big arenas. And he just said yes, you know. And from then on, he was a member of the band, on and off, you know. That tour was hard. One of the greatest tours he did with us was in Spain and the UK, where he also has a big audience, or had a big audience. And um, those were our own shows headlining. I remember there was one show at the 100 Club that was probably one of my favorite Beachwood Spark shows ever, and Neil got to share that with us. So it was really great. I remember him and I afterwards going like, hey, do you, this is the 100 Club where the, where the Pistols played. It, it was, we were, the moment wasn't lost on us. That's so cool. And I know that there were a couple of shows that he played in Europe where he actually covered some Beachwood songs. Was that uh, around the same time? 
Yeah. There was one show in Spain. We were playing a kind of a big festival, uh, Razzmatazz, and he was playing it in like a coffee shop that was kind of connected to the venue. And uh, I told the guys, hey, I'm going to go catch Neil's set. And I walked in there and he was playing my song, Old Manatee. Up next to mine, sing a song from sweet Tennessee. Still riding high Grab a star in your hand When the sun rises Just let it be And I, I don't think I had cried in about five years until uh, I, until that night. And I just, I couldn't believe it. So a couple of years later, you also appeared on Neil and Shannon McNally's album, Ran on Pure Lightning. Do you have any memories of that recording session? Yeah, so many. It was, I, it was such an honor to be asked. He had told me about the other musicians that were involved. And I was just like, and you want me? He goes, you're, you're a great bass player. And I was like, okay. Well, I met Jim Scott that day, Neil's friend and longtime producer, and we were in the studio and I, I asked where to plug in. And Neil said, right into the tape machine here. And I was like, oh, don't you have any uh, compressors or anything like that? And um, he goes, no, just plug in. And then uh, we did it, it sounded great. And then um, he introduced me to Jim and Jim said, oh, it's nice to meet you. And then he said, hey, hey, the band didn't use any compressors. It kind of a burn. Um, on me. But it was funny, though. It was really memorable because rock and roll, there's a lot of good natured ribbing. And I think when somebody zings you like that, I think they're giving you some acceptance or at least you learn a lot from it because, you know, you walk into those sessions. It was at Cello Studios, which is formerly, I forget which studio it was, Ocean Way or something, where a lot of great records had been made. And I had been in there for a recording session with Primal Scream and a few other things just as a spectator. And I was pretty in awe of the experience. And I was a little nervous. So those kind of zingers, they, they break the ice. And uh, it was great to be a part of that. I mean, I listened to it a couple months ago. And I was just like, that's Neil's a damn good producer, because he produced it, you know, right. And, and, and they recorded that in a closet. It wasn't like, oh, cello, and you see this big, like behind the music Neve console, it was a, a little analog tape machine. In a, in a storage closet where they probably cleared out like all of Led Zeppelin's old road cases or something. And they said, Neil, go in, you and Shannon go in there. And they're like, hey, well, at least we're here. <laughs> yeah, they made it. <laughs> yeah, totally. So a couple of years after that, Neil joined Beachwood Sparks again to record The Tarnished Gold, which is one of the best albums ever. special memories from those sessions a lot really um neil was official member of the band he wasn't um neil's very mysterious when he was on the road with us with the black crows a lot oftentimes he would ride in the van but there was times when he was in his own truck just meeting us at shows mm -hmm. and and then we'd go on tour in um 
Spain and the UK and he'd disappear and meet us at the show. So he always, he wasn't an outsider at all, but, but with the tarnished gold, that's when he was there from the beginning. He got to hear the songs with the exception of a few that Dave and Chris and I had worked on. He got to hear them from the beginning and be part of the writing and the arranging. And he was a member of, of the band. And uh, I was going through kind of a tough time then with the health scare which turned out to be okay, but he would always take me aside and say um, how lucky he felt being there and um, and thank me. And it made me, I had come out from Florida to do it. I, I'm trying to say um, it wasn't about the sympathy that he gave me, but he um, it was about the recognizing how special it was to be there. And it really was, because you, know, you don't want to blurt out in a room full of people, hey, this is fucking great. But he pulled me aside and said, Brent, this sounds really good, and this is really fun. Everybody was getting along, and everything was recorded live, and it was the way you want to make a record, where you the band records it, and then Tom Monahan mixed it. And the cool thing about that is Neil ended up making a record with Tom after that, so you can tell that the magic kind of carried over. But right. th- there were so many great memories about it. Musically, it's it's all on tape. It's all on the records, and... I'd love everybody to know when it was Neil's piano and when it was his guitar and when it was his voice. But I think it was the main essence is he was a a real full-fledged member of Beechwood Sparks Mm -hmm. at that point. Right. And it seems like it was a very like communal record because you had, you know, the original, you know, so many of the original members, but you also had Ben Knight and and Dan Horn playing on it too, who... You know, I'll play on this record on the tribute album, that is. And that's really special. They all were friends with with Neil. I mean, look what happened. Uh, Dan was that was his first recording with Beachwood and they ended up doing circles together. It's still on the road now. I mean, it's like it's not me. It's Beachwood Sparks and Neil. And there's a lot of relationships from those sessions that are still going on, like um, Farmer Dave and the Wizards of the West and. That was such a special time. I'm so glad Neil got to share in it. Yeah, definitely. A lot of connections and just a, a big family tree that continues to unfurl its leaves, which is pretty cool. So It's true. That's 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 the vibe. Plant-based yeah. band. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, you started Gospel Beach, and Neil was a founding member as well. How did that come about? That was weird, but it was very cool. Um, I had moved back from Florida to Los Angeles, and that's when Neil was full on in the CRB world, Chris Robinson Brotherhood. And he was rarely in town, but one time he was in town, and it just so happened my friend had set up a new studio in Chinatown, and he was looking for a band to record. And the label that I was working with asked me to make a solo album. And I said, I don't really want to do that. But if I can get some guys together, I'll start a band. And Neil and Tom Sanford, those two guys just met me down there. And it was the three of us just started tracking the songs that Tomo and I had been working on. And and Neil pulled up in his his Honda, you know, his uh, minivan thing and pulled out his road cases and uh, his pedal board. And we just laid it down. There was no like, what's this and what's that? There there was one conversation where he said, what's the name of this band? I said, I think it's going to be called Gospel Beach. And he went, Gospel Beach. I love it. He, I loved when he got excited. So he, he isn't on every Gospel Beach album, but he's still involved even on the ones he didn't play on, like doing the photography for the cover of Another Summer of Love. But he does play on 
on uh, your most recent LP, Let It Burn. What were those sessions like? Those were really special. That was an exercise in in selfishness and, and ego. I was going through kind of a hard time with the loss of my father and, and I know, and I think I was having uh, separated from my wife just at the time shortly and just really boohooing. But I had this killer job at this design firm and I was making an album with all of my friends and I had really no reason to, to be all pouty, but you know, I was kind of using that to as inspiration. But in the midst of that, Neil was suffering and we could see it, but we didn't know what it was. We didn't, we just didn't know. I, he even said to me during one of the sessions, I, I, I need to talk to somebody. And I was like, oh, I know. Yeah, so do I. You know, it's just, I just didn't see it. And I, selfishness isn't the, the right word. It's just because we all were there. It wasn't just me. But um, the sessions were great because they were on the lighter side of this to celebrate an incredible talent that Neil was. This stuff was live. And Neil would play his solos like right after the take. And they're all killer. And if you, all the good songs on that record, Neil's on. And when we didn't fuck with it, mess with it too much um, and let him shine, he, it does still shine. His voice, oh man, just having him sing with me on songs like Fighter. And um, it, it was it was just amazing to, we're still recording in that same studio and, and we kind of, have a little space roped off where Neil stood and played mm-hmm. the solos and sang where we don't tread on that space too, too often unless we need some magic. But it was special for me because Neil was a founding member of the band and I knew it wasn't going to be like a real band, but we recorded it like a real band. You know, he wasn't just in and out. He called the shots when he was in and he was part of it. And it was really special, but there was something there. But I was in a dark place and it was hard for me to see his dark place. And, I, and I, I regret not being more aware, but I also don't think it would have, you know, made any difference, you know. Right. Well, we are lucky to have so many, you know, great collaborations between you two because you, Thank know, you. you did sing together so beautifully and yeah, feel, feel grateful for that. Uh, so along with band members from both bands, from Gospel Beach and Beachwood Sparks, you recorded a great version of You Don't See Me Crying. So we're going to take a listen to it now. You tell me that you're so sad and blue, but I don't see you crying, it can't be that bad. Can you tell me a bit about why you chose this song? This is a special song. Um, Well, it was my favorite song. um, It was my first favorite song from his album, No Wish to Reminisce. Um, He sent me that that record before, you know, while he was making it, he was sending me CDRs and asking me for advice about mixing and stuff. 
I was supposed to be a um, a musician on that record, but I couldn't make it out to Connecticut because Neil recorded it with uh, Michael Deming, who who recorded the first um, Beachwood Sparks album. So Beachwood Sparks had a big influence on Neil. His second act of his music career. I love where it led him. But the song, you know, it kind of, the story I just told about Let It Burn and, and the lyrics to that song, it, it's, it's all there, you know? It, it's all there. And um, without being corny, you really do have to see somebody. If you, even if you don't see them crying, you have to see if they're hurting. You got to be close enough to know if they want you to know, you know? And um, sometimes we don't want people to know. And that's okay, too. But, um, that you know, that song was just so special um, lyrically because I myself, can I relate to those words a lot because I used to not be able to ask for help. And I have often had some sad moments in my life. And then all my cries for help were, like, very harmful to myself and to others rather than just saying hey, I, I need a little help. I'm suffering here. Mm-hmm. So you don't see me crying means a lot. I like the whimsy that we put behind it. So it's not so heavy. Mm-hmm. There's so much I could say. I could go on forever about that song mm-hmm. and about that experience. It was just amazing recording it. It was um, a gift from Neil to be able to work with Jim Scott and to get the, the guys from Gospel Beach and Beachwood Sparks together, along with Alex Coford. I mean, that's all we have these days are, I mean, it's not all we have, but in music, all we have these days are these friendships and collaborations. And I was just talking to a musician that I'm working with now who's almost 70 years old. He's been stunned at all, played everywhere, made records that are in your record collection. And um, he says every time he gets to play, it's like a, it's like a vacation, like a, not a fantasy, but just he just really, really enjoys it. And it's a privilege, not a privilege that you earn in the army, but a privilege about like just that gift of, of, of joy, you know? And I told him, I said, I feel the same exact way. And that um, the experience of doing the Neil song and even, even promoting it has been really fun. Yeah. So let's take a quick listen to Neil's version so we can compare and hear uh you know, your, your whimsy versus his, uh, Michael Deming produced, you know, psychedelic dreamy. (laughs) It's such a different world now. says that was uh, one of Neil's favorite songs that he ever wrote. And you're especially thanked in the liner notes of this album. I'm guessing that's because there was so much back and forth. And I'm guessing that you suggested Michael Deming or he chose Michael Deming because he wanted that, 
you know, layering and overdubs and that kind of dreamlike sound that we hear on the album. Yeah, I, I like my little box in there that I have. That was really special because I forgot about that until mm-hmm. um, I can't. I hope they leave it the same way on the vinyl. It was also about like, you know, us indie artists, independent artists, like with Michael, you get this killer studio with this killer board working with a pretty much a genius and you get to stay there and you're getting a lot of bang for your buck for the budget and you get like a million dollar album for, you know, for something that's affordable. Michael fell in love with Neil and... um I mean, that album's so great with the Leslie guitar. It, it, you know what else about this song that I really remember is uh, there's a, not an acoustic, there's a solo version that's on YouTube of Neil when he wrote it, playing his 335, just solo uh, somewhere in France or something. And it, and it just like shows you the power of the song because it just stands on his own, just a guy and his guitar, electric guitar, I think, plugged in. And there's also Freeway to the Canyon and Grand Island and so many other um, sleeping pills and stereo. I, I actually went to uh, the house he was living at the time, which was in Highland Park. And I think I got the vibe on when he was writing that song too, just by walking into his house one day to pick him up mm-hmm. to go to lunch or something. I was just like, this guy's living it, man. He had a tape machine set up and you could tell he was just like breathing his mu- living his music. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like, Hey, put, would you take all your music stuff and put it in the corner somewhere or We'll build you a shed for that. It's like he was surrounded by guitars, tape machines, Warlicers, his records. You knew what he was doing in there. Right. And I think even when recording um, at Studio 45, he was camped out, sleeping on a camping mattress yeah. in the studio between the amps and, and everything. So, yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> There's a picture. I slept on the, uh, control, uh, on the couch in the control room. Where so many like musicians' butts were, so <laughs> like <laughs> I had to like put some stuff over it. But I wanted to be really close to the uh, to all the gear, so I could plug my headphones into where the CD player and listen to all the um, rough mixes. And then I had my George Jones and Tammy Wynette CD that I was like with the Billy Sherrill production or Billy Sherrill, whatever. Uh, so I would be like, hey, let's don't stray too far from this. You know what I mean? Like, because mm-hmm. with Beachwood Spark, that's the cool thing about Neil was Neil knew everything that we wanted to learn about. He already knew about it. And we had to fight to not just repeat what we already learned that he didn't know about, which was like mm-hmm. indie rock and a right. lot of post-punk and weirder music. So it was like this trade-off, you know what I mean? It was like he'll tell us the real story about the band and we'll tell him about joy division. It it was, it was pretty, it was a great relationship because it wasn't just like, Oh, you like the stones. And you know, it wasn't just the same thing. I had so much to learn from the guy and Mm -hmm. I did, I did, we did learn it. And we, and it was all, it wasn't just their music, you know, we, we were actual friends, you know, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. Off the top of your head, what are some of the bands that he got you into? Um, he got me into Pentangle. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, um, well, to be honest, he got me into a lot of Rolling Stones that I didn't know. Mm. A lot. I, I'm ashamed to admit it. And uh, I know he'd be sad about Charlie Watts, you know. When I think about him, there's there's some other ones. Um, Mississippi John Hurt. Didn't even know who he was till I met Neil. Yeah, he had a deep appreciation for, like, all those 
old blues cats. Yeah, but but he knew that Mississippi John Hurt would be something that we loved because it was so melodic and he played the 12th string and it wasn't just like Callan Wolf or whatever. It was it, it was cool, man. Neil's like he is sneaky. Um and there's a lot more too. Um it was fun to to share music with each other. I mean, that's what we all still do. Mm-hmm. Look at Instagram. Yeah. It's like, look at my dog and then here's five bands I want you to hear. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing about it. <laughs> uh, so back to the song itself. Um, along with you, we have Trevor Bell Jimenez, Ben Knight, Alex Coford, Johnny Neiman, Farmer Dave, and Jim Scott even all playing together. So how was that recording process at Plyer Studio? It was incredible. I wish it was a real band. I, I I mean, it was a total dream come true. It was like an exercise in creativity and professionalism and um, where like true rock and roll meets the craft of making records, um, something I didn't know about. I've made some records with some producers over the years and they've been pretty good experiences and pretty professional, some a little bullying, some a little, you know, just the, the stuff you've heard of. But working with Jim was just incredible. It was a gift from Neil just to record that one song. If I wasn't a million years old and I had a real band that could play live and had, you know, three or four members and songs, I would say, go to Jim and make a record. You know, so, you know, with me, with uh, what what, what I took away out of it was um, kind of something selfish. But um, I keep waiting for the right band to come along on my label, the right artist to hook them up with Jim. Mm-hmm. And Jim and I have stayed in touch and we get along and I'm just in awe of what he does. And uh, to share that experience with Trevor, who was a friend of Neil's, not through Beachwood Sparks, but on his own through Ventura. That was very, very, very special because it wasn't just some random dudes. And, and shoot, Ben and Neil had their own surfing relationship and Farmer Dave that I wasn't even a part of. They had their own. You could talk for hours with them about Neil. I was just the one who met him first amongst our friends. So I get to lay claim to that. And I'm proud of that. <laughs> but but that experience was incredible. And, and just really quickly, I've heard the record a bunch, the tribute album and Jim and Dave, phenomenal. They did a great job. It's like, it's easily going to be, I'm, I'm trying to wait till I get my vinyl so I can really listen a bunch. But I've listened to that SoundCloud link a lot. If you, if you, if you look at the algorithm, it's probably my email. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So I think that especially means a lot coming from you because you were a huge fan of Neil's and a champion of his solo work already. So were there any songs on the tribute album that especially blew you away? Yes. The Cold and the Darkness, um, Tim Heidecker. When the cold and the darkness are too much to bear You've heard And it's kind of a wild card because I'm not sure what the relationship between Tim and Neil was beyond um, Dave Schools being in the middle. But uh, when I heard Tim's version of that song, I had to go back and, and listen to this, the original version on Roots and Wings. And then I was it was like a hidden it wasn't just a hidden great song. It was like a hidden message from Neil. Mm-hmm. And I cried 
so hard when I when I heard the line, I'll lean in for the picture because I have I have a lot of pictures of Neil and he's always leaning in. He's always do, you know, he's got this, but he's, he'll, you know, he's like, you know how many pictures he took? He was so nice. He met his fans and um, if he t always took time for him. So there's a ton of pictures of him out there. But uh, that song, oh, shoot. They all shine in the hands of the artist. Jamie's version of uh, Need Shelter was perfect because Neil wrote that from, from a female point of view in the first place. Right. I know he was like taking a line from John Prine and twisting it, but I always wondered. So it was like perfect. And um, I'm, I'm forgetting right now, but the, the, those two are, are my favorites. Um, but they're all really good. They're all super good. Some of them are better than Neil's versions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bold, bold claim. <laughs> well, only because... I was close to Neil and we were friends. So mm -hmm. we, were mu we were musical friends, but we were also friends in life. So we, we confided in each other. And when I told him, man, this record didn't come out for us the way, or the, you know, this shit. And he was always a big cheerleader saying, no, no, it's fine. But he, he told me a, a, on, on a few occasions that he um, wanted a little more from his solo records. Not, mm -hmm. not, I'm not naming anyone particular. I'm just saying he was just like, you know, we tried and, he always gave himself to the process, so it's no, nothing against um, the other people involved, but just sometimes it just doesn't, you know, line up. And um, I know he wanted more, and he always asked me if I would help him produce a record. And I always, I think he just thought that I had a lot to do with the Beachwood Spark sound, which I, I don't know if I did or not. I was, I was just in the band, you know. I probably would have fucked up one of his, messed up one of his uh, his records, but I know that he and I, well, that's why I'm saying that some of the versions are better than the ones on his record. Mm, gotcha. He would love that. Yeah, he, definitely. Because he always loved that I had the, the guts to say weird things <laughs> in right. public. Right. Well, I agree that there are some like really gnarly, like cool out there interpretations that are just, I can imagine him going like, Oh, you know, like the Damascus version. Oh my God! Well, I blew his mind with the um, with the Freeway to the Canyon that Gospel yeah. did earlier because I changed it all around. I sang the wrong words and I changed the arrangements and the feel. <laughs> he, he told me that his mind was blown. He was just like, man. and I said, well, you know, now you know what I feel like when you sing Old Manatee or New County or the Reminder in, in tune with a good <laughs> voice. You know, mm -hmm. he is actually hitting the notes that I hear in my mind that I can't hit. And, mm -hmm. uh, oh, man. I mean, doing each other's songs, it's like, that's what, like, our contempt, not our contemporaries, that's what our heroes did. You know, we had a right. real, we love, I, I love J.D. Souther and the Eagles and Jackson Brown, and they're all doing each other's songs. You know, that's what you do. And that's a big compliment when you take the time to, because I don't do covers. I'm not, I got a lot of friends in cover bands. and. Neil did a lot, did some covers, but he wasn't a cover artist. You know what I mean? He was a songwriter and um, that's a, that's pretty high praise. Definitely. And finally, your version of You Don't See Me Crying uh, was chosen to be released as a single alongside the artist list announcement. And at the same time, you released an incredible video for the song. What can you tell us about the video? I'm so proud of that video because it was... Um, I think the first thing that's striking is that 
Neil was an incredible photographer and the Tomorrow's Sky book that uh, Jay put together was just phenomenal. And the director and the animator, Cyril, he used those photos for all of the background and all of the pieces for the video. So it was a dream to like, it was a concept was if we could green screen ourselves and put ourselves into Neil's photographs, could we do that? And we went for it. You know, even the piano that Johnny's playing is the piano in the picture. I don't know. I think that's the piano in Neil's house. And it's just like, you know, everything is there. So it's not just some random, let's make it look cool and use some old neon and some hotels and horse. It was, it was Neil's world that he captured through his, and then we got to inhabit that. And I think the video is really, really super special. I'm super proud of it. I'm really proud of what Cyril did. And Cyril was a director that I had met through running my label. And he's done video for a few of our artists um, leading up to this. But I think it was meant to be that he was going to get something special, a special song and a special project. And he was going to make something that great. And I can't even believe the number of people who saw it. And just... Yeah, Rolling it blew stone. up. Yeah, I know. It blew up for us. I mean, and that's the thing about these gifts. If the gift can be that the foundation can help somebody who's hurting and they will make that phone call or the or drop the email and say, look, I need help. I need money. I need rehab. I need to talk to someone. I need a guitar. I need, you know, whatever it is, it's not just about like, suicide prevention but that's a huge part of it because i've just we've just lost too many people to suicide and i was listening to i I read chris hillman's biography and was listening to him and dwight yoakam and chris hillman and the birds are some a band that neil and i loved chris hillman's father had committed suicide and so had graham parson's father and it was um it, it got me thinking about about this and, and and some of our friends who have passed away through other experiences, but most of them, it could have, it's um, whether it's from substance abuse or it's all basically a suicide. So the way it got me thinking, and this is going to be pretty heavy, is that, that Neil has to like that, you know, we have to use the gift. We have to use the gift, the, the video that got around. If it helps like everybody involved then that's good. That's mm-hmm. fine. And if it helps somebody say, what, what is this? Why did they make this video? Oh, shoot, I'm feeling that way. Then that's really, really good. And um, when, when I say the gift, it's not rah, rah, look at me. I'm great. You know, I didn't even want to sing the fucking song. I really didn't. Chris, our, our, the singer for Beachwood was really supposed to sing it, but COVID made it so he couldn't travel down and do it. So I had to end up singing the song. And I feel kind of dorky because I want to share the video more. But like, since I'm sitting there in my cowboy hat singing, I'm just like, ah, I'll just share it every once in a while. But I'm really proud of it. Yeah. Well, you did a phenomenal job and the video is so amazing. And I think people probably don't even realize that it is Neil's photos and until you really take a good look. So well, congrats you should... to all involved. because I amazing. think so. By the book. Um, I went back and looked at the book after I again, after the video was done and, and and talk about tears. I mean, I was just like shaking, holding the book and just like touching the pictures like I wanted to be there. And then I really started thinking like, you know, there's a picture of the camping mattress in between the amps. 
So all this can come to life and you can see all of this. And um, I hope people will really, really take the time to not only listen to Neil's music and listen to the tribute album and watch the videos, but, you know, also get the photography book too. Yes, absolutely. And it's available at the Neil Cassell Music Foundation's website. Little shout out there. So Brent, thank you so much for sharing your memories and all these great stories. We really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone out there. Peace and love. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. Thanks for listening to Highway Butterfly and the stories of Neil Cassell. Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Cassell Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcasselmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.